0: If you have your Bible, you could turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. So good to be with you today. So glad that I can be a part of this with you. My wife really wanted to come and be with us, but she's recovering from illness and didn't feel strong enough to come. Going to be speaking today on just uh, three verses here in Isaiah chapter 10, uh, verses five to seven. I'd like to start by reading those Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations." Now I know on the surface this might seem a rather strange passage, for us to focus on for a message, but I hope as it unfolds that we will see that the Lord has uh, many things uh, for us here. I need to give one note of historical context so that we can grasp what uh, Isaiah is telling us here. At this particular point in history, the Assyrians were building a world empire, They were growing by leaps and bounds. The nations were falling like flies before them, and and they were building their kingdom. In fact, so devastating was uh, the things that the Assyrian Empire was doing. They had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, which would never recover again and ever be an independent nation again for the rest of their history. So Assyria... ...is on the move, they are growing, they are expanding. And then Isaiah comes with this message of woe. I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that when one of the prophets... ...starts out a message with the word woe, basically what he's going to have... ...following is judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. But in this case, he says something rather strange... Notice it. I want to read again verse 5. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Now, don't miss this. What he's saying is, yes, I do have judgment coming on Assyria, but I've got a job for them to do first. Before Assyria is judged, I'm going to use them. Did you see it here? He describes, God describes Assyria as the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. Now, you might think, if you didn't read carefully, you might think he means, oh, this woe to Assyria means God's about to bring the rod of his anger against Assyria. But look closely. That's not what he says. He does not say, woe to Assyria, because I am about to bring my rod on you. What does he say? He says, Assyria, you are my rod. I'm going to use you, Assyria, as my instrument. You're going to be the staff for which I bring indignation on the nations. In other words, though Assyria is this wicked, godless empire that doesn't know God, doesn't care about God, doesn't want God, yet God's going to use Assyria as the rod of his anger to administer judgment to other nations. Quite a marvelous thing, isn't it? You see... This concept has always bothered the people of God through history. Did you know that this even bothered the prophet Habakkuk? If you're familiar with that little book in the Bible, Habakkuk, you know that one of the first questions that Habakkuk asks early in his little book is this, which we find in Habakkuk one thirteen. He's talking to the Lord, and he says You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? You see, Habakkuk was experiencing the same exact thing that we're talking about in our passage What Habakkuk was all concerned about, he said, yeah, Lord, I know Israel's got it coming. I don't have a problem with your bringing judgment on us because we deserve it. But what I can understand, Lord, is how you can use a more wicked nation than Israel to bring judgment on Israel. I don't see how that fits with your plan. In the same way, the prophet Jeremiah would come later on in history And he would describe the wicked Babylonian empire as God's hammer. Same thing. You see the principle coming across. God uses wicked nations to do his will. This is God's absolute sovereignty. God is in charge of all the nations. What to you and I are big events and big deals, to God, in a sense, are very little things. For instance, listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, and this is God's outlook of the nations. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Amazing, isn't it? You see, the nations, not intentionally, but they are doing God's will. That doesn't mean they know they're the instruments of God, doesn't mean they want to be the instruments of God, but they are doing what God has for them. We look at Putin, we look at the, what's going on in Ukraine. We feel the sadness. The, the the too many videos now pull on our heartstrings. And while Putin has one purpose for what he's doing, God at the same time is using what he is doing for his purposes. And we must not miss this. You know, the Lord Jesus really brought this into focus for us When He was standing before Pilate. You know the Jews had already condemned Jesus. They they wanted to put him to death but they had to get Pilate's approval so they brought Jesus to Pilate and Pilate while Pilate was examining Jesus the Jews are just firing accusations against Jesus one after another after another and Jesus didn't say anything. And finally, Pilate was so amazed, he said to Jesus, don't you know I've got the power to crucify you or set you free? Now I want you to listen to Jesus' answer to Pilate. Listen, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. The only reason that Pilate could do what he was going to do is because God was allowing him to use his power that way. He didn't want to be God's instrument. He didn't know God. He didn't care a thing about God. But yet he was doing what God had for him to do. In other words, Jesus was saying, Pilate, you're not in control of what happens to me. And we need to remember that, brethren. No one else is in control of what's happening to us, to our country, to our world, but the living God. He's in control. Now, if you're following along, I'm going to move on now to verse 6, where this is spelled out even more. Notice it says, This is God speaking, and he says, I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, got to follow it. Who's the I will send him? God will send the king of Assyria. We're back now to Assyria and the king of Assyria. So you see what's going on. God says, I will send him, that is the king of Assyria, against an ungodly nation. And now the amazing thing is, what is this ungodly nation he's describing? What is it, what's the nation that the king of Assyria is going to be used against? This ungodly nation that God says, against the people of my wrath, I will give him charge. Well, again, the astounding thing is, it's Israel. God is saying, I'm going to use this wicked, godless Assyrian king to come in with his army and to wreak havoc on Judah and the southern kingdom of Israel. Notice it here at the end, just of the end of the verse, the devastation that this king will bring about. He says, to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. You know, it's interesting, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah at all, you know that Isaiah was told by the Lord to give his children some pretty unique names one of the children was to be called Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speed the spoil, hasten the booty. In other words, that's what the last half of this verse is describing. When the Assyrian comes in, the Assyrian king with his army, and he begins his devastating work, he's going to make very short work of Judah. Attacking, cleaning house, taking much spoil and doing it very quickly. But now let's pause for the question that gave Habakkuk so much heartburn and maybe bothers you and me. Why use Assyria to do that to Judah? We all know that at this point in their history, Judah was in serious departure from the Lord. There's no doubt about that, but still we are left with that question, why use Assyria? And I think the Bible gives us the answer, and that is because in God's eyes, those who have had greater privileges from him are held more accountable by him. Very important for us to realize the reason God was going to use a more wicked nation than Judah to punish Judah is because Judah knew better and Judah was more accountable. Because think of Judah's history, go all the way back to the beginning of Israel as a nation in the scripture. What do you see? Privilege. Do you not see privilege? They have the word of God. They have prophets coming to them. They have the temple. They have the sacrificial system. They have all kinds of privileges whereby they might know God. But here they are at this point in their history. And for all those wonderful privileges, you would be hard-pressed to tell them from the other godless nations of the world. You see... And so they're more accountable. And that's why God was going to use a more wicked nation to judge his people because they should have known better. Listen to Jesus. Jesus made this point very powerfully. As he was traveling around in his earthly ministry, you know he would go from place to place. He would preach and he would do miracles. And On a couple of those occasions, there was, like, no response to Jesus, even with miracles accompanying his work. And finally, Jesus spoke up about it. And this is what he said in Matthew 11, verses 21 to 23. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. You get Jesus' point, don't you? He says... Chorazin and Bethsaida, you're way more accountable because I came to you personally. I preached to you personally. I did miracles in front of you, and it didn't faze you. You didn't respond. You were cold, and nothing happened as a result. He said, you know, if the things I did... In your cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if I'd have done those things back in other cities that were judged off the face of the earth, they would have still been around. There still would have been an influence in them for righteousness. So you see the principle. Accountability. Jesus said this in Luke twelve forty eight: For everyone to whom much is given... From him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Now, let's bring this home a minute, friends. What about the USA? Have we had privileges way beyond most of the nations? You know we have. I I think a good case can be made for the fact that the United States was the most gospel-blessed nation that's been yet. But look at us now. Where's the light? Disappearing, isn't it? It's a really, really sad thing to live through. And those of us who are a little older, to see how much has happened so quickly in the last few years, it really hurts. It really hurts. Look at what we have become. But we're more accountable. Just like Bethsaida and Chorazin. We had gospel light everywhere in this land. Opportunities to hear the word of God, to hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere. And now it seems... We're doing our best to try to hide the whole thing and sweep it aside. And the judgments God is, that he is going to bring on us will be the more severe. They will be the more severe because we had the greater light. Which brings us now to verse 7. The last verse in our passage, but really the heart of what I have a burden to to consider with us today. Notice verse 7. This is a fascinating verse, to say the least. Yet, he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. Now, again, you've got to follow the detail or you'll miss the benefit. Notice, let me define who's speaking here and who he's speaking about. Yet, he does not mean so. Who does not mean so? The king of Assyria. Remember, we've just been told the king of Assyria is going to be God's instrument to administer discipline on Judah. But he does not mean so. He has no idea he's being used by the living God who is giving him every breath he takes. He has no idea of that. You see that? He does not realize that he is being used by God, nor does his heart think so. That thought doesn't cross his mind. As he says, we're going to go get Judah men and we're going to take lots of spoil. He doesn't relate that to the fact that God is the one who's having him do that. That's not in his heart. But did you notice it uses the word heart a second time? While that's not in his heart, the verse says, what does the second half of the verse say is in his heart? But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. Do you see that there's a different purpose in God's mind? For what's going to happen, and what's in the king of Assyria's mind, for what's going to happen, what is in the king of Assyria's heart? I just want some more nations, some more spoils, and build my empire even bigger. But what's in God? What is God doing? God is using him to cut off not a few nations as Assyria acts as the instrument for His judgment. So, brethren, this leads us with a puzzle to resolve. Here you got the king. He's got one set of desires. Just keep building my empire. And yet, God is using him to further his plan and to bring his discipline. But you see, we would be very shallow if we only looked at Isaiah chapter 10 verses 5 to 7 as applying to that one immediate situation. The scripture everywhere wants us to see that what is set forth here applies everywhere. It applies to everything, to every event, to every person, to every nation, all of it is in some way accomplishing God's will, whether or not they intend to be accomplishing God's will or not. You see, that is the extent of God's sovereignty. Every thought, word, deed, motive, Attitude of every creature, being, beast, or thing is part of God's plan. You see, brethren, if we don't have the big picture in mind, we can get really jumbled up as things unfold and lose our perspective and maybe even be overcome by worry. The last part of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, he, that is God, predestined us according to the purpose of him, that is God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you see the extent? Let me, let me ask it to you in the form of a question. What's not covered by all things? It's all covered. All things are part of an eternal plan of God. And we know it's an eternal plan because if you back up just a few verses from the one I just read for you, it, we read in Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, all the planning God did, he did in one instant. He did it in eternity past, and it includes Everything that would ever be. God is not having to do any adjustment as things go on. He's not having to say, didn't foresee that one, better take care of that. God knows it all. God sees it all. And he is taking everything after that plan. Even Peter, when he spoke about the fact that Jesus would one day come to this earth. He said this in first Peter chapter one, verse 20. He, that is Jesus, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Do you see that? Jesus coming isn't an afterthought. It's not plan B. Before the foundation of the world, as part of the all-encompassing plan, God had determined that he would send his son into the world. Now, why is this so important for you and me? Why? It means nothing's out of control. That's right. Nothing is out of control. God makes no mistakes. Right. There are no Accidents, none, zero, God and his plan are accomplishing just what he determined would be. Now, brethren, I know that what I'm talking about can be hard, a hard pill for many to swallow. I I realize that. But you see... And I think the sticking point for a lot of people, why they just can't bring themselves to go as far as the Bible does when it says that everything that happens is part of the unfolding of God's eternal plan, I think the problem comes in with what we've been seeing about the king of Assyria. You see, because we see the king of Assyria as just being a hateful, power-hungry, empire-building king. Who doesn't care who he has to wipe out to get a little bit more for himself? What, but at the same time, our passage has told us he was being God's instrument to administer judgment. And, I, and in order for us to be comforted on this point, I want you to see that's the amazing ways of God. God can take something that someone has a totally different intention of doing and use it for his purpose and for his glory. And that's what I hope that we will see. I cannot think of a better example of what we're trying to say here than Joseph. Probably everybody here is familiar with Joseph. Would you let me rehearse it real, real briefly with you, quickly? You remember Joseph was hated by his brothers and as a young man sold into slavery by his brothers to get rid of him. And you know in Egypt he was bought by a man and rose to power in that man's household but was falsely accused by the man's wife and he was put in jail and while he was in jail he languished there for a few years but at the end of his time in jail he was taken out to interpret a dream for Pharaoh and as a result Joseph was given a high and prominent position in Egypt. But then the brothers came back into the picture, right? They came and visited because they were wanting food. And eventually, Joseph revealed himself, didn't he, to his brothers. But their dad was dead by then. And so the brothers are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, Joseph's got all this power. He's not going to forget what we did to him. Now he's going to get revenge. But just when they were thinking... That maybe Joseph would get revenge. Joseph said this to them. I know you know these words. There's some beautiful words. But listen. He said this to his brothers. But as for you. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about. As it is this day. To save many people alive. Now think of that statement. Let's go Over that statement one more time, Joseph knew what his brothers meant. What did they mean when they sold him? Evil. You meant because they hated his guts. Let's be honest. That's what they were. Get this brother of ours out of our sight for the rest of our lives. That's what they were doing. But is that what God was doing? God, he says, God meant it for good, not only to spare his own family, but basically to spare the world from a famine in that day. You see, man intends one thing, but God intends another, and you can never second guess God. His ways are too high. Too great, too glorious. We will never fathom God and his ways. We can only sit back and marvel. Think with me again what Putin is doing in the Ukraine. Putin like some of the others we've described today, wants more power, more resources, more who knows what, that he's out to get there by his attack. But what he means for evil, God has a purpose for it. Don't miss that, brethren. Don't let anybody steal from you the truth that God isn't wasting anything that happens. Let's take one more example. I think everybody in this room would agree if I say the wickedest act of history ever was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Probably won't get an argument from anybody here. And yet, how did Peter describe the crucifixion of Jesus to the Jews that he was speaking to on the day of Pentecost. Listen to Peter's words because they're very amazing. Here's what he said in Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. You see the different purposes? Wow. In some of the heaviest language you're ever going to find in the Bible, Peter stands up and says, Men of Israel, wicked men crucified our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, they were fulfilling the foreknown predetermined purpose of God. So what was man's purpose in the crucifixion? Get rid of this this one that's exposing our sins, that's making us feel that we're not the spiritual giants that we thought we were. But what was God using the crucifixion for to save the likes of you and me? Amazing. Just what Joseph said. You meant it for evil. God saved a whole world of sinners by what? The wickedest act in history. You see, brethren, now, let me wind this down with a few other points of application for you and me. We all struggle with everything when it goes bad and is falling apart. Not easy for anybody, not not anybody. So what do you do when things are falling apart? What do you do when all your best laid plans are dashed to pieces and it becomes obvious they're not going to come about the way you had wanted. What do you do when finances go in the tank, when your health falls apart, when your children make bad choices, when your country and even the world is on a downward spiral? What do you do when the person dearest to you on the whole face of the earth is gone? What do you do? What do you do? This is what you do. It's very simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's very simple. Brethren, what we need to do is make one simple adjustment, and this is what it is. God, what I was hoping to be able to do was apparently not your plan. Help me to gladly receive what your plan has unfolded to be. Now, brethren, I, I don't say that's easy. But it is very simple, very simple. Just say, Lord, this is painful. I don't like it. Oh, but I bow to you who love me and have better wisdom than me to accomplish your perfect will in my life or in whatever is going on. One last thing. We've been considering together today how even the desires of a person, which we could say are at cross purposes with what God expresses in his word, even when they want evil, wicked, and wrong things, yet those desires we have seen play into the plan of God in his amazing ways that he can take all of that and make it accomplish his will. But did you know there's one desire that no human being can ever have? There is one desire that no human being, as we naturally come into this world, as we come into this world as the Bible describes as fallen human beings, the one desire none of us can have the way we come into this world is a desire for God. There is none righteous, no, not one, none who seeks after God. None of us wants God naturally. None of us will ever have a desire for God. We're running away from God. We want to stay away from God. The carnal mind is at enmity against God. That is the condition of every human being born into this world. Well, then the question arises how then does anybody ever get the desire? How does anybody ever get the desire? If none of us has it naturally, none of us can drum it up. None of us can change our mind. None of us can start seeking God on our own. How then did any of us or all of us here today, how did we do that? And the Bible's very plain. God does a miracle of grace in a soul, which Jesus defined as being born again. He gives new life. He actually changes your being. He changes your heart. And once he changes your heart, then you're not wanting him. him went to what? Wanting him very much. You're not seeing yourself as too bad of a guy. Went to what? Seeing, wow, I'm a very sinful person and I need a savior. And then when you're in that condition and he shows you the Lord Jesus Christ Well, you can't take him fast enough. But you see, you got to be made alive first. got to be made alive. And you want to know how to tell if you've got new spiritual life? You see your sin. You see the Savior. And you run to him and say, I trust in your saving work and precious blood and that alone to make me right with you. Has it happened to you, friends? God give you that desire, that amazing, wonderful desire. If he did, then I know you. You want to know him better and love him more and live more faithfully for him every day. That's you, if you've been born again. May it be so. May God give it to every one of us. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that you have shown us that you are the God who rules and overrules in all of the affairs of men and nations. The nations are but as a small drop in the bucket to you as the dust on the balances. Lord, you are so great and so high that if we, if we just try With all of our might to try to fathom some of these things, we get lost very quickly. Because as the heavens are high above the earth, so are your ways above our ways and your thoughts above our thoughts. But how glad we are that we're in your hands. Oh, what a joy. What a joy to know that we're secure in your love and that while our world seems to be falling apart, In some way that we don't understand, you're working out your purposes. Just receive our praise and adoration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.